The other day, my kid asked me, said, why is all of our art about killing whales? And I said, it isn't, you smart aleck. We also got pictures of old trucks, dogs, Jesus, and Louis Armstrong. But she's right. We got a lot of art about killing whales in our house and a lot more that's just about whales in general. I was hanging a photograph um, by a guy named Palani Mahan. He's an Indian photographer, and he had a Time magazine photo of the year 15 years ago or so that depicts one of the two remaining Indonesian whaling communities. It's interesting because they have their sustainable whaling practice, and they do it with... uh, American-style harpoons and whale boats from the 19th century, the stuff you would have seen in, you know, in Moby Dick, read about in Moby Dick, or seen at Mystic Seaport Museum. He has a bunch of photographs of, like, you know, Mongolian horsemen hunting foxes with eagles and that sort of thing. Much of his work is interested in sort of documenting some of the kinds of practices that used to be around and continued back for centuries, but were thought to be, or are thought to be, a part of the distant and, uh, frankly, barbaric past. And I think I share a similar interest in that. I don't know um, sort of human occupations that would have been pretty ordinary in most parts of the world are seen as extraordinary now. That technology has seemed to render some of those things obsolete. When I was working with a local museum, they have a a ranch, and they were interested in setting up a blacksmith shop. And they talked to um, one of my granddad's buddy's sons about getting some of his equipment in there. And he's like, you can't put that stuff in a museum. I still use it. And a blacksmith is still a useful person, despite the fact that modern machining and milling Um, can make things cheaper and faster. Uh, There's still um, some interest in having a blacksmith knocking something out in an anvil. And I'm fascinated by that myself, obviously. I think ultimately most of the art that I have on the walls, or or much of it anyway, the stuff that that my child is humorously commenting on, what it depicts to me is uh, people working. I love uh, the ocean, the sea, I love whales, by the way. I don't really want to kill them. I joked to her that I needed to stay sharp on how to kill them in case they mounted a comeback. But, of course, I've uh, I've participated in the Save the Whales movement, and I, um, and I love whales. But uh, what I see in those photographs is, is people trying to earn a living uh, out on a space where they wanted to exist and, and earn it. Um, I'm less interested in pretty pictures of the ocean than I am in pictures of people earning a living on it and engaging it in that way for for various reasons. I don't know. And the Polani Mohan photograph comes to me as a gift from a student, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. And I'm also grateful that he sort of understood... Um, that I would appreciate an image that some people might consider offensive, but that I would be able to um, see it in its historical context and cultural context and um, find it beautiful, frankly. So you know who you are. Thanks, brother. 
one of the things I guess I love about the sort of like working class art or at least art of working people is that it doesn't really draw much of a distinction between art and craftsmanship. I've always believed that craftsmanship is the foundation of art. Do something well, have control over your tools, and then you can make art out of it. And then I also, um, I'm not a Dadaist or something, but I think that ordinary objects can be art. I think that you, that you, um, build in a kind of intention and a kind of purpose and a kind of, you know, an intention of design in things you make and they become art. I think that my guide boat that I talked about in my last podcast is art. I've seen it displayed in museums. Not my own boat, of course, but boats of the same design. If you go to the New Bedford Whaling Museum, you'll see a statue out front of Lewis Temple, the designer of the Temple Toggle Iron. You'll see Temple Toggle Irons in any whaling museum, pretty much. Um, if you think about a, a classic harpoon that looks kind of like a spade on a playing card, um, that was the standard until the 1840s when Lewis Temple, a blacksmith from the large free black community that worked in the whaling industry in New Bedford, uh, there was also a free black community that was very involved in whaling um, on Nantucket, but uh, Lewis Temple was from the New Bedford side of things. And he designed this iron that instead of going in and then doing nothing, they would, they would try to twist those traditional harpoons when they put them in the whale so that they wouldn't come out. Um, and obviously that was difficult to do. And this iron went in and then it had a matchstick that kept it from toggling and the matchstick would break when the iron started to come out. It would open up inside and it was basically impossible to take out. Um, sometimes the whale survived it, by the way. Melville talks about finding whales that had various irons twisted and remaining in their, in their side. Uh, Moby Dick was supposed to be festooned with various <laughs> irons. And then Melville even claims to have found a stone whaling harpoon, you know, uh, harpoon tip in a whale. Anyway, the temple toggle iron is a beautifully elegant and rugged design. And the reason it's the one in the, in the museums is not just the, the, nod to this innovation of this particular smith who was who was obviously very talented i mean it's a it's a, a machine as a functioning moving parts um, but it's also because it has an elegance of design that warrants display anyway i like art that's connected to the useful i think you know i'm such an american in this ben franklin you know talks about utility obsessively and the thing that is useful is the thing that is beautiful in America and to me uh, historical art that shows working people doing stuff is useful because it can teach you the legacy of that work and that labor and it can put in front of you the lives of a class of people that's often left out of the you know belletristic literature the highbrow art that you might see in some other parts of the world or in some other museums. And I think that that is something that's fascinating to me and I'm really attracted to. I guess my version of it, you know, I have 
probably more guitars that I've made hanging on the wall than I have paintings or prints or other photographs or other art objects. And most of our art in our house is, um, is, is made by some of whom are professional artists, but many are not. And that personal connection also, I think, is, is something important in art, at least to me, the relationship you have with it and the relationship you develop with it. One of the prints we have in the house uh, is by an artist named Thomas Hoyne, and I was sort of fascinated by him for a long time. I, I still am in a lot of ways. He's not a particularly well-known artist, but I think he's interesting. The painting depicts um, a whale boat in the water and the whale ship in the distance, and the whale ship is very clearly based on the Charles Morgan, the whale ship that is in the permanent collection, is a centerpiece of the collection at Mystic Seaport Museum in Connecticut. It's really a wonderful thing, um, and I really, really enjoyed going there. I would highly recommend a trip to to that boat. I've uh, been able to sing sea shanties on it. I've been able to climb in the rig and, and really see the ship um, in exactly the way they were in the middle of the 19th century. The ship was built right alongside the ship that Melville sailed in and represents as the Pequod in Moby Dick. Um, and anyway, it's a very, very fascinating uh, and very historically accurate painting with a description of the depiction of the whale ship and the particulars of whaling. Hoyne um, had elaborate models built of many of the American type ships, um, and he depicted seascapes and sea scenes, particularly of men working at sea, whaling, fishing hauling goods um, with tremendous accuracy. Um, he was a, painted in a very realistic style. He was a, a commercial artist in um, Chicago. After serving in the Navy as a Navy officer in the Pacific during World War II, he uh, became an, uh, a graphic artist in Chicago. But he had spent a lot of time on the coast of Maine, um, and the Cape Ann and Gloucester area. And I think I probably identified with him because I um, share the love of that area and was able to see a lot of his paintings when I lived in New England. Um, one thing that's interesting about him is that he adopted this representative style, um, this kind of realism in a time that was pretty out of fashion. He was active, I guess, through the 60s and 70s, um, but really a lot of his great paintings that we know now were made in the 80s. He died in 89, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And you might see some connection to photorealism in the paintings, but I I don't know that that's really right. I mean, he he seems to have a realistic style, but it seems to be not particularly contemporary. And if, again, if you think about the sort of art movements, abstract expressionism, color field painting, pop art, um, that uh, sort of like are holding sway through um, through his lifetime and through his painting. He's, he's pretty out of step with the trends, and yet he's found a really passionate audience, um, I guess among people who love the sea and who love sea paintings, and see those paintings in the context of Winslow Homer paintings and uh, 
you know, Fitzhugh Lane paintings and that sort of thing. He um, had these elaborate models of a lot of the American types of ships built, um, you know, the Gloucester schooners, the fishing schooners. He was very influenced by um, the movie Captain's Courageous that he saw and uh, recognized some familiar places from having been in, in Gloucester. And uh, these models he had made are in um, the collection at Mystic Seaport Museum. I've seen them. They're wonderful. They're beautiful. Uh, they weren't being displayed at the time. I had access to the back of the collection through a fellowship I was on. And they, uh, though they may be, you know, more available now, but they're really, really remarkably historically accurate and detailed um models and they're quite large I mean they're maybe four feet long each um, so they're with their rigs are as high as they are long and um, I think that they really contributed to the the uh, accuracy and the and the realism of the depiction of the ships but only to a certain extent of course the ships that he paints are immersed in in water they're not uh, you know they're not hovering on a stand so there was a the element of imagination there anyway uh these pictures of schooners um, were were really really sort of uh what his reputation is staked on mostly fishing schooners but also pilot schooners and and whatnot and he depicts again um like winslow homer before him he focuses on people working men working at sea more than he focuses on you know the abstract or distant beauty of it there's a a great painting he has of um the theobo um racing the blue nose there there it's a one of the famous schooner races uh every year in gloucester or in uh, nova scotia the the gloucester massachusetts fleet would race the nova scotian fleet and the the schooner blue nose the nova scotian schooner was was a very famously fast schooner and it was kind of the pride of the fleet for a long time, and it's depicted in a lot of, a lot of paintings. Canadians are very proud of it, I guess. Um, and anyway, the even even during the race, there's uh, you know even it's a pleasure outing for the crew. You can see a man standing at the masthead on the foremast of the schooner as the as the Theobald leads, uh, leads the Blue Nose. And you're aware that there are people on here. You're aware that um, men risking their lives for various things, in this case sport, but for your fish, um, is still an important thing to remember. And again, it's, uh, it's remembrance for him because that painting is from the 1980s. Not incidentally, both of those schooners are in Captain's Courageous, the Spencer Tracy movie from 1937. If you want to see how this world works, if you want some context for these Winslow Homer paintings that I always refer to, like the Fog Warning or these Hoyne paintings, if you're going to look them up, um, watching that film with Spencer Tracy um, would be really a good way to sort of understand both that culture and how the boats work. And there's a racing shot of both the Theobald and the blue nose at the end and then most of the long shots are of the blue nose which it was still an active racing schooner in 1937 uh, when victor fleming made the film so um, i i recommend it 
I kind of want to assert here that Hoyne, um, as a art world insider, as a professional, was very, very self-conscious and intentional about his decision to adopt a style and a subject that were sort of seemingly out of touch. He was putting himself into a conversation historically with these other painters. Um, again, particularly Winslow Homer, but not but not solely Winslow Homer. There were many other Gloucester artists who were who were had done this kind of work, and some of some of whom were still doing that work. But uh, uh, several of Horn's paintings feature this sort of really interesting juxtaposition between um, sailing schooners and steam schooners or steam fishing vessels out on the banks. There'll be a schooner sitting there with the mainsail set and the men working in dories fishing, and behind it there'll be a, a steamship without a without a mask and they're uh, or you know with a short mast and with a smokestack and they're kind of you know prosaic and unattractive things next to the sailing boats and there's a sort of sense of nostalgia there and I would also suggest there was that level of intent and design that made those ships art and frankly I think they are I, I I'm not alone in this but I'm but I'm probably in the minority, but I think that the sailing schooners, the fishing schooners, are the most beautiful objects made by humans. I do. He also has some of these shots where, some shots, they're paintings, um, where there's a, a ship in the, a cruise ship or an ocean liner in the background, or a towboat coming to tow the schooner, and it's a sort of a a nod to the fact that technology is taking over and that the way of life he's depicting is passing in the moment of the painting, has passed by a hundred years in our time, but it's still interesting to look at in the heart of it, the, the notion that that schooner is more beautiful than that stink pot in the background and that it's a there's something worth preserving there is very well preserved in the paintings. And I think that that's something that I can say about Hoyne as well as a painter. He decided to be a blacksmith despite the fact that he could have been a machinist. He decided to adopt a style that was unique to him but was not necessarily new and was probably seen as quaint and old-fashioned and maybe over by the art world. And he chose to depict a way of life that had that had long since passed from the living memory of most people. The schooners hung on fishing in that way until around the turn of the century. Well, until around World War One, and then they started to fade. By the end of World War Two, they were pretty much gone because most of them had been um, requisitioned by the by the um, Navy to patrol the coast for submarines. The schooners they used in um, Captain's Courageous, as I said, were racing schooners, and they were participating in kind of an old-timers league, I guess. Anyway, Hoyne made a decision that he could make his mark on the art world not by doing the next great thing, but by simply going back to something that appealed to him and doing it in a way that put him into a conversation 
that was more long-term. And I think that for viewers, they may be surprised when they walk into Mystic Seaport and see his paintings. They may be surprised that they were painted in the 1980s and not in the 1880s or around the turn of the century. But they don't seem out of place in that context. And he seemed to have sort of that context and his legacy maybe more firmly in mind than he did, um, you know, selling his paintings or becoming successful or certainly more so than following the trends. And I think that that's interesting. I guess one of the things that fascinates me about this whole thing is that it's very possible to not do the new thing, to choose your time and to live within it and to be content with that. And I think that that's maybe an important thing to remember. It's an important thing for me to remember because sometimes I feel out of date or out of touch because I'm not pushing forward into the next horizon of technology. I'm thinking about that a lot right now because I'm about to go to my online teaching world. Anyway, if you have a mind to, you can still be a blacksmith, I guess, is all I'm saying. It's not too late.